Hi, I'm Bob Eckblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. Today I want to take a second look at Ezekiel chapter 16. Last week we looked at how the Lord passed by and saw the baby girl, Jerusalem, cast out into an open field, kicking in her blood, and how God tenderly spoke life into that baby girl, you know, telling her, live. You know, I say to you, live. And just that beautiful invitation of God who comes in like a father, you know, who speaks a word that um, Jerusalem's father, you know, the Amorites, Ammonites, that God father didn't speak, but God, um, you know, God speaks life into this baby girl. And and then in the next part, we see that um, he sees her, you know, and when she comes to her time of love and he puts his skirt or actually literally his wings over her using the same term as we have in the Septuagint of, a, of Psalm 90 or Psalm 91 in the Hebrew Bible. You know, he covers her with his wings. And then he says, he swears that he will enter into a covenant. Um, he's sworn to enter into a covenant with her so that she became, um, she became his own. So it's like, now we have a shift in the metaphors and God is described as, as the spouse and he's taking Israel um, as his wife and he bathes her with water and he washes off her blood and anoints her with oil and clothes her with embroidered cloth. And he puts sandals of pur- porpoise skin on her feet. And he wraps her with fine linen and covers her with silk and adorns her with ornaments and bracelets on her hands and a necklace around her neck. And he goes on, I will put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so that you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced in royalty. And um, just that picture of God's elevating uh, the beloved in that um, to the highest place and showing so much honor and dignification. And, you know, that picture of, of the adoption, um, you know, it's a picture of adoption, but it's, it's more this metaphor like that we have in the New Testament of Christ being the bridegroom and, and the church being the bride. And here is, is a foretaste of that. And, um, but then we have uh, a shift in all of this in verse 14. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. So there we have a contrast. There's others that are passing by, and because of of the exaltation of, you know, of Jerusalem here, of God's people, we have um, all of this evil that is uh, suddenly being done because of, of pride and um, and just haughtiness and everything. And then, um, and so this refers back to the very beginning of this chapter where the prophecy begins with the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. And um, and remember, we looked at how, um, you know, how last week we looked at how Jerusalem reflects the locatedness of the people of God. 
you know, the, the temple was located in Jerusalem. And we saw how in the New Testament, Paul's notion that we are all temples of the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to read uh, Jerusalem as the locatedness of the people of God anywhere we might be. So while, uh, you know, Jerusalem itself is uh, kind of the, the capital and the, and the main city that represents God's chosen people, Israel, um, I think we can say that it represents uh, the locatedness of God's chosen people wherever we are. So a contemporary place, um, a contemporary Jerusalem would be, you know, Washington, D.C. here for the United States or New York City. And for France, it would be Paris. For England, it would be London. Um, you know, for Kenya, it would be Nairobi. You know, um, whatever reflects, I guess, the the, the main um, you know, the main core place that is exalted uh, before a particular, uh, you know, manifestation of the body of Christ in whatever country we're in. Um, you know, Jerusalem in many ways is like principality and power. It's defined kind of that way here. It's a collective entity. And, um, and remember in New Testament understandings, all of the powers and principalities were made by Christ and for Christ, you know, for the glory of God. But there's been a cosmic rebellion, and these powers um, have have been elevated by people through idolatry, and which and and so they've fallen in a way. Like if we understand them to be powers that are part of the divine council, and you know, looking at Psalm eighty-two and everything, um, there's a expose of you know the sons of God that are part of the divine council who have fallen and who are no longer really doing what they were created to do which was to be servants of the elect and under the authority of the elect and under the authority of, um, you know, of God and finally of, of God's Messiah, Jesus. But anyway, um, just going back now to Ezekiel, uh, one thing we need to remember about Ezekiel is the prophet Ezekiel, he lived during the Babylonian exile and he was active as a prophet from about 593 uh, BC to 571, and he lived as an exile himself, and um, and so he was preaching in Babylonia, you know, probably in a, a Jewish settlement, and and so really he's already located um, in sort of the ruin in the I mean in the place of exile, and and he's speaking as a watch person, and really what we have in the next part of Ezekiel that we're going to look at today you know, from verse 15 to the end of the chapter of chapter 16 is a prophetic um, expose. And um, one of the, the roles of the prophet is to be a watch person. And we see this really clearly from right at the beginning of Ezekiel, you know, where, um, where in Ezekiel chapter, you know, chapter three, it, um, you know, it describes uh, in verse 15, then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Chebar at Tel Aviv, and I saw there, uh, I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way, that he may live, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you've warned the wicked, um, 
and he does not turn away from his wickedness or from his wicked ways. And remember, uh, that word wicked in Hebrew is synonymous with the rich and powerful more than it is with just, um, you know, sort of how we would normally understand wickedness as someone who's morally uh, corrupt, though, although it includes that. Um, if, uh, yet, if you've warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked ways, he shall surely die in his iniquity, but you've delivered yourself. And again, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you've not warned him, he shall die in his sin. And his righteous deeds, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you've warned the righteous person that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you have delivered yourself. So, um, anyway, if we look now at just um, um, something Daniel Bergay has written, I, I want to quote now from you know, his book, The Tenderness of God, page 66. Um, so here, Daniel Bourguet says, um, she, that is, Jerusalem, went outrageously astray to the point of prostituting herself. All this is the content of the great oracle of chapter 16, and it helps us better understand the role of Ezekiel. The oracle is a sort of audit that God makes and wishes to make known to Jerusalem through the prophet at a time when the ignominies and the abominations of the unfaithful spouse have become his central concern. God lets the extent of his suffering be known, the extent to which he's been hurt by his well-beloved. We're to understand that God, so grieved, does not wish to give direct outlet to the pain that overwhelms him. In this, to say that God's tenderness can be wounded, is this to say that God's tenderness can be wounded? God does not exactly say so. So, that, as it may, in order not to let anything appear openly on this subject, he goes to work discreetly behind the scenes, making Ezekiel his confidant. Go, son of man, go and tell my well-beloved her abominations. Go and tell her what is so hard for me to say. Go and pass on the message that I entrust to you, even if you have to add your own words. You will know how to speak what I feel bad about saying in my great pain. Go after my well-beloved. So God hides his wounded tenderness carefully and instructs a third party to speak in his place. Jerusalem will hear nothing directly from the mouth of God, but will hear everything by the mouth of the prophet sent to her. So here's the issue. This is still the way God operates today. And, you know, Paul writes about um, how we're supposed to pursue the spiritual gifts, especially uh, that we might prophesy. And prophecy includes actually whistleblowing and exposing the sins of, of the people of God, exposing the sins of the powers and the principalities, exposing the injustices. And this is something that is desperately needed today. And right now we live in a time where false prophecy is rampant. And, um, and I believe that um, Ezekiel is, is also really, really strongly opposing the false prophetic. And right now we have the false prophetic um, very active and very, uh, you know, very deceptively at work everywhere. So, so clearly strongly present in the United States and, uh, but elsewhere in the world too. And so, um, I just want to talk about the false prophetic briefly before we, we really launch into what Ezekiel is exposing in the rest of this chapter. 
So in Ezekiel chapter 13, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel, who prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. So in other words, one of the roles of the prophet is to strengthen the walls um, that would protect the people of God. And, um, you know, right now we have um, so many breaches in the walls. And, um, and, and I think there's, there's many prophetic voices out there that are pointing to, um, you know, to offenders and to um, perpetrators that I think are, are, and they're missing the point of really a lot of the struggle that we're facing right now. Um, so once again, chapter 13 of Ezekiel verse five, you've not gone into, up into the breaches, nor did you build a wall around the house of Israel, the people of God, to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. You know, I think of all the people that that prophesied that Donald Trump would, you know, would be elected in the last election. And many of them are prophesying that he'll be elected now. Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said the Lord declares, but it is not I who have spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, Therefore, behold, I am sent. I, I am against you, declares the Lord God. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord um, God. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. Anyway, we can go on and on about that, and that's a whole other topic. But I'd like us to turn now to um, just uh, the beginnings of Ezekiel 16, where once again it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. So what are these abominations? Like if we look at that term in Hebrew, it's referring to all these things that are outlined in the Mosaic Law and say, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, especially. So, it um, you know we can look at many scriptures about that. And once again, that's not the focus of of um, of the podcast today. But one of the primary abominations is graven images of gods that um, that people make sacrifices to, and and it's disloyalty. It's like idolatry. So, um, you know, the abominations are are doing things, making sacrifices to the gods which is epitomized in sacrifice of human beings. And um, cursed is the person who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, Deuteronomy 27, 15. Um, anyway, a cursed is the person who makes an idol or a molten image. I mean, that's repeated elsewhere. Um, so anyway, here, let's just go back now to uh, the beginnings of today's um, text, which is Ezekiel 16, 15. But you trusted in your beauty. Um, so Israel, who represent the people of God, anywhere that we might be. That I mean, idea, originally Israel, of course, is associated with, you know, with Abraham and 
the, the people of God who came in response to who, who, you know, who its origins are God's call of Abraham and the promise, the covenant to, uh, to bless all the families of the earth through the seed of Abraham. But we are part of that. We who follow Jesus, we are grafted into that, into, into that, uh, chosen people of God. Um, so Israel, the people of God, God is the creator. Um, and so, um, the foreign girl who's rescued from being cast into the field is, um, is, is, is really, uh, the people of God and Jerusalem is described that way, um, as a way to show that there is no sort of foundational myth of the innocent, perfect sort of origins. Instead, um, you know, God describes Israel as, uh, his father is an Amorite and his mother is a Hittite. And so, you know, pagan origins. And so, uh, there's an expose of, of, of that, of the origins, the, the originating story, you know, and here in our country, we have, um, you know, this myth of this, uh, of these divine, you know, sort of, uh, of the divine chosen status of the first, first pilgrims who came and who were fleeing persecution in England and, you know, who were Christians and this, this myth of, of, of the Christian nation, um, Israel had its own versions of that, but here Jerusalem is being exposed right from the start as, you know, as really just a, a pagan and, um, rejected, um, you know, cast out like infant who, um, and, and God is the one who comes along and, um, and rescues and saves. And then, um, and then in the second metaphor, um, makes a covenant of marriage to the people of God, you know, which we see worked out in the new Testament with Jesus being described as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. So the problem here is, is that the people of God, uh, trust in their own beauty that has come as a result of God elevating them. And, um, and there's like this description of, of sort of a narcissistic, uh, uh, personality disorder that is collective. You know, you trusted in your beauty, um, after, um, God has actually done all the work of, of, you know, of cleansing and adorning and everything. Um, you know, God, um, they've forgotten that, um, their origins are really by grace that he's rescued Israel from the gutter, you know, from a situation that, um, involves like complex trauma, you know, being cast out into a field of devastation near death. And then God has lavishly clothed, uh, God's people with riches, adorning her with jewels only to see her naively and stupidly take everything that he's given her to offer to false gods, selling herself as a prostitute who wantonly pays her lovers, you know, who are pure abusers um, in the end. So through the prophet Ezekiel, God exposes how she desperately and even stupidly is actively paying her abusers, who then expose her and destroy her, showing how faithless, how faithfulness, um, or how, um, you know, how they've been completely disloyal. I mean, that's rather than faithful, right? Faith, um, faithless. So God speaks to the people of God who were led by men. It was a patriarchal system through the prophet, a man putting them on blast for all um, who read scripture or who listen to the prophet to see. And so this prophetic exposure. So, you know, one of the questions um, that I want to, look at, look at now when we, when we see this is what might this mean now? 
um, you know, how has Jerusalem uh, played the harlot because of her fame? Um, I mean, the first thing I think about actually is, you know, Jerusalem in, you know, in Israel now, um, you know, when Jerusalem allowed the United States to build a consulate right there in Jerusalem when Israel, um, you know, welcomed um, the United States to do that. To me, that's a prime example of playing the harlot, you know, just, um, and throughout Hebrew uh, prophetic tradition, there is, uh, you know, there's denunciations of Israel having alliances with the nations. And so um, some of the Zionist mindset in, that I've heard, especially in the United States and in the UK, that says that we need to support Israel, the state of Israel through, you know, giving the military aid and all this, um, to me is like, um, is like going completely against the prophetic um, uh, tradition, which tells Israel not to make alliances with Egypt, not to make alliances with Assyria, with any of the nations, but to trust the Lord as her defender. Okay, so anyway, that would be an example of of Israel in um, you know that's playing the harlot now. So let's look at verse sixteen. I'm just going to read a section of this. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot on them. And um, and then it says, You also took your beautiful jewels, made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourselves male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and you covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil and honey, with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. And so it happened, declares the Lord God. So the clothes, well, that was part of the liturgy of Israelites, but also of the Canaanite religions, you know, like think about the priestly clothes. Um, many of us probably aren't familiar with all the traditions in Leviticus that describe, you know, the, the priestly garments and, you know, all of that we, we would find, you know, pretty tedious and probably would have a real hard time identifying with that. I mean, I certainly do. But if you want to understand just what is being talked about here, I think that's where you'd have to go. And um, so anyway, you took beautiful jewels made of the creator's gold and silver, you know, the spouse uh, that were given to the bride. Um, and, you know, and you use that to to pay your lovers is what he's saying. Um Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter? You slaughtered my children, and you offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. So here um, is a reference to sons and daughters sacrificed to Baal, and to other pagan deities back in the day. So what would that look like today? I mean, I think of these uh, colored cloths um, as the flags of our, of our nations. Um, and I think of the sacrifice of sons and daughters. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is just, um, you know, the military and, um, and how, you know, we, you know, we, we sacrifice our, our young and our, you know, our youth of our, of our nation, even though, um, you know, we have a volunteer army in the United States, we used to have a draft, but regardless, um, 
joining the military is very seductive, especially for people from the ghetto and from places of poverty, because it gives people, you know, the opportunity of, of, of stepping into a career and having their university paid for and all that kind of stuff. But regardless, you know, we are, um, we're sacrificing our sons and our daughters. Um, recently I was in New Zealand and I was giving a talk and sharing my own testimony of coming to see how the United States had supported military dictatorships that were anti-democratic and how we toppled, we have toppled all over the world, democratically elected uh, presidents, like especially like thinking about Guatemala in, in 1954 when Jaco Barbens was overthrown and we overthrew, um, you know, one of the uh, presidents of, of um, Iran also back in the day, which has led to the Shah coming in and then um, a lot of the, you know, the current regime that is there now is is there in part because of, you know, U.S. interventions, you know. Um, but anyway, like um, I was just sharing some of the history of the United States' involvement and my coming to awareness of that and as part of my, my testimony. And at the end, uh, an American woman came up to me and said, you know, I have to talk to you. Um, I found it just so, you know, so, so, so problematic that you were putting the United States um, under the microscope and criticizing um, our country. And, you know, you're just feeding right into the, the Kiwi mindset of, of the tall poppy syndrome, you know, and she's referring to, you know, that, that a tendency that is kind of talked about in places like New Zealand, but also Scotland and Sweden of anyone that excels or gets higher above anybody else and is kind of critiqued. And so I was feeding into that by by critiquing, uh, providing ammunition for New Zealanders to criticize the United States. And she felt shame probably about that. And I told her, look, I feel like that's part of my calling is actually to expose um, the damage that American Christianity has has participated in by, uh, you know, by presenting the United States as in an elevated way and by believing in manifest destiny and believing in and defending U.S. imperialism around the world. And anyway, she, she said, well, what about all the people that have sacrificed their lives for your freedom? And I said, look, um, there's only one who sacrificed his life for my freedom, and that's Jesus. And, um, and you know, that notion that, the, that, that people have sacrificed their lives for our freedom uh, is naming really child sacrifice um, as something that has, is fully endorsed by people who believe in USA or whatever nation or, you know, political party or gang, you know, or uh, terrorist group or whatever it might be. Um, you know, the, the belief in the sacrifice of human being, it's called even the, the, the ultimate sacrifice, which is to me such a blasphemous thing to talk about giving your life in war uh, as a person who is, who, who, goes out and kills an, an enemy combatant, uh, even if it's in the defense of the homeland. Um, you know, as followers of Jesus, our, our, we have no homeland. You know, um, the kingdom of God is, um, is what we're looking for. You know, um, and we are strangers and aliens. And our, our identity as followers of Jesus uh, means that we have to refuse um, being um, identified with the principality that it is you know, that is over, that is claiming our allegiance, you know, whether that be 
the nation state, in my case, the United States of America, or a political party, or a denomination, or a corporation, or whatever it might be, a flag, um, a gang. So when we think about the human sacrifice that happens in wars, think about the Iraq war. There were 4,431 American soldiers that died in that war. But in the whole war, there were between 268 and 295,000 people who died in the Iraq war um, on all sides, and 176,000 in Afghanistan. And then if we go back to the Vietnam War, there were like something like 1.6 million people who died in those wars or in that war. And um, when we think about other types of of human sacrifice. Think about just um, abortion. In 1990, there were something like 1.6 million abortions. And, you know, in 2020, that's dropped to 930,000 in the United States alone. So, you know, this is another type of sacrifice. In that case, sacrifice, you know, to um, maybe people's desire for independence or for a career, or there's all kinds of complex reasons why people would choose to have an abortion. But I think we need to, you know, think about all the ways that um, that we sacrifice humans today, who are God's children, each one of them. So today we we also can be seen to sacrifice our sons and daughters to our careers. You know, if we work for a big company and and it's it's demanding that we put in overtime and we're and we're using the t- the gift of God's life to us, we're sacrificing that life for the benefit of a of a of a company or even a church at the expense of our own children. Or, you know, we give ourselves over to our culture, you know, to, uh, uh, we give up our time to, uh, we sacrifice our time to spend all of our time, um, you know, at, you know, like, like football games or, you know, just sporting events or, you know, uh, watching Netflix or, you know, I'm not saying all of those things are just evil in themselves, but, you know, how does idolatry function in our culture? Do we even talk about the na- the notion of idolatry? We take the money that we make, um, you know, through giving of our time, through the sacrificing of our life, of years and years of our life, and we we give it to uh, to buy positions in the stock market. We give it to the market, and we watch it go down and up and down and up. And we believe in the market. You know, I've I've talked to so many people that just say, you know, just trust the market. Don't look at um, if you have if you have investments, don't look at them. Just trust. If you look at um, history, you'll see that the market basically always um, is faithful, and it's it's truly a god to many people, and a god that we need to resist. So we sacrifice people also to our laws. You know, think about the, the time that we take away from people's lives by incarcerating people to extreme levels. You know, we give people years and years and years of time in prison with no rehabilitation, uh, virtually no rehabilitation offered. And and that's getting worse and worse and worse. We put people in solitary confinement. We deprive people of their life. That is child sacrifice. And right now it is happening at extreme levels. And is the church speaking out against this? Uh, In many cases, the the conservative church in America is is saying the opposite. It's saying it's, it's, it's promoting the death penalty. Um, as, you know, for drug dealers and for all kinds of criminals, it's calling for, you know, uh, a stronger enforcement of laws, you know, more time in prison. Uh, it's, it's calling for the expelling of 
vulnerable people, immigrant workers, um, you know, who are often have often come here, maybe making their own sacrifices to the idols of, you know, of of, of materialism and mammon, and um, but often coming out of complete desperation, and you know, the right wing um, church has has lifted up um, political agendas, um, and b- lifted up the law, lifted up. Um, this myth of this uh, of this America that was once considered to be great, even though um, the origins of this country were um, slave labor and the genocide of native peoples, and um, you know, and the stealing of land. Um, you know, there's people that want to just set all that aside and say that's just all liberal propaganda. You know, uh, our origins were actually truly uh, Christian, righteous, pietistic, pietistic. Okay, like it's complex the origins of our country, but let's not um, let's not be part of any kind of justification of the powers and principalities. You know, we need them to come under our feet, uh, whatever they are. So, uh, chapter sixteen, verse twenty-three. Then it came about after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. Okay, what might that be? Well. I just think of entertainment, you know, systems like our televisions and, you know, we've got in every house, we've got a shrine. Uh, in so many houses in the USA, we've got a flag, a flagpole. Talk about a high place. And you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. And you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. Now, this imagery um, of prostitute you know, is, can be really offensive. And I mean, it is offensive. It's, it's not like uh, females are worse perpetrators than males. It's critical to remember though, that um, the people of God who were being led by men and, uh, and who are being portrayed here uh, as Jerusalem, which is a city, it's this, uh, it's this, it's the entirety of the people that are being described as prostituting themselves. So it would be like um, telling the American Christian church, you know, you're a whore in the sense that you're selling yourself, but it's, um, but it's men, you know, who are uh, the, the greatest perpetrators of being, of prostituting themselves, um, even more than it is women in this case because of the patriarchy. So um, giving, um, you know, letting people violating us, uh, what does that look like? How are we doing that? Um, how are we, are we giving ourselves over to our employers and to the corporation that we work for or to money, to the economy, to capitalism, to our nation, to our denomination, to our particular ideology, to our particular, uh, you know, um, party, whether it be Democrat, Republican, or no party at all, um, to the flag, to the powers and principalities, you know, think about Romans one, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so their foolish hearts, our foolish hearts are darkened, you know, when we lift up the creature and we, we elevate it through idolatrous allegiance. Um, Paul writes how our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. Um, Ezekiel goes on, you've played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold, now I've stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations. 
And I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughter of the Philistines, who um, are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them, and still you were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of the merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this, you were not satisfied. So remember, um, Ezekiel is in exile with the exiles and is exposing um, Israel's past sins, which has have led to them um, losing everything. You know, the Babylonians came in and um, completely destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, carried, killed many, many um, um, of the people of the land, left the poorest people in uh, the land of Israel, but then took sort of the cream of the crop and, you know, and others into exile. And so uh, Ezekiel is there uh, kind of exposing all of these, uh, all of these things that have already happened. So the Egyptians, um, you know, like playing the harlot with the Egyptians would be pagan, non-people of God, um, those who enslaved God's people. So who might the Egyptians be today? Well, maybe the military, the, the capitalist system um, that requires everyone to work for an income, to be a consumer, in order to be a consumer. Um, I mean, there's, it's, it's critical for you to do your own work in your own setting as you think about this. Um, and I encourage you to read Ezekiel 16 you know, prayerfully and carefully, because all of us have, have, a, have a, will find different ways to apply this. But I think we need to recover a robust understanding of the prophetic. And uh, so I'm going to keep reading verse 30. How languishing is your heart? That's literally uh, the word languishing comes from the verb akal, to be weak, um, to languish. Uh, so how weak is your heart? Um, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot, when you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square um, in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You're a, you, adulterous wife, who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus, you are different from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given to you. Thus, you are different. So I just think about this. How do we do that? How do we give money to those, um, you know, to those who um, are, you know, are violating us? I mean, um, I think that we can be like a, a, a prostitute that gives gifts to the Johns when we give our endorsement to political candidates, when we give our votes to a particular candidate, when we praise um, this or that party over that or this or that party, you know, our political engagements often are like that. Or, you know, when we promote um, different laws um, as if the law is really going to be what resolves, you know, what brings about transformation. Like, you know, we, we completely... Um, fail oftentimes to see that the law is really the Pauline understanding of the law is that it is that it shows us that we're that we're transgressors and, and we're in need of forgiveness and we're in need of salvation you know um we can't save ourselves by the law i mean that is that's Pauline theology um, at its core is that you know you cannot save yourself through um through following particular practices you know through complying with particular laws you know we are saved completely by grace um I think we have to be really careful that we're not putting all of our energy um, 
into um, and, and giving um, our uh, our energy, uh, you know, to promote um, political agendas that are based on you know uh, changing laws and making laws, uh, as if that is really how change happens. Anyway, um, verse thirty-five. Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. I love how God is speaking uh, to this um, to to these people, and you know we think about some of the understanding that sin separates us from God. In this case, that's not the case because God is directly speaking to uh, the perpetrator here. Thus says the Lord God: Because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons, which you gave to idols. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved, and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction, and expose your nakedness to them, that they may see all of your nakedness. Thus I will judge you, like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers." And they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. You know, um, so there's a strong, um, strong, strong warning not to trust the pagan powers with whom people, uh, the people of God are, are in bed with. You know, and that really they'll turn against you. Like, like Israel, the people of God here are just, just being described as utter fools. Like, you know, um, and think about Israel right now, you know, um, in what Israel's doing in Gaza. Um, you know, Israel has depended upon um, military aid from the UK, from the United States, from Western Europe. And um, and now, because of the genocide that's happening to the Palestinians, you know, um, we, we see that Israel is being exposed and being brought to trial uh, for genocide. And, you know, we have we have prophetic exposure of the abuses of Netanyahu and, um, and really everybody who's joined in with that are being put on blast. You know, all of the, you know, the, the people that have just stood in hundred percent loyalty with, you know, with the Zionist state, I think are being shown to be, um, you know, to be, you know, really unjust in this situation. And this is an opportunity for us, um, you know, not to come from a place of, you know, of just, uh, you know, condescension in, in judging Israel or any nation, but to go back to our founding, you know, kind of uh, story as it's described, you know, in, um, you know, where, where God describes Israel as being, as being a baby that has been cast out into the open field and kicking in its blood and, and God come passes by and sees and says to that baby, you know, live, you know. But instead, we we forget that we come from a place of of death and a place of struggle and 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 of need of salvation. I mean, not everyone forgets that. Clearly, the twelve step movement is all about, um, you know, it begins with recognizing that we need a higher power, right? That we can't save ourselves, and and it's really us coming to that place of, of recognizing that you know, we need a savior and everything we've tried to do to console and comfort and save ourselves has led to, uh, you know, devastation. And this is really what this is about. This, this whole prophetic oracle, it ends that way, but let's keep going in verse 40. They will incite a crowd against you and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. 
They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you and my jealousy will depart from you and I will be pacified and angry no more because you have not remembered the days of your youth but have enraged me by all these things. Behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all of your other abominations. So the prophet here tells the people of God that those that they've sold themselves to will turn against them. And this is a warning to um, the church right now. You know, we have so many people mobilized uh, around partisan agendas to support, you know, Donald Trump or to support Joe Biden, you know, or some other candidate. And, um, you know, those people will turn against, you know, these false uh, pretender saviors will uh, make use of of naive, uh, the naive people of God who are, who have been co-opted and who have sold themselves and prostituted themselves and then turn against them when they're no longer needed. And um, now we live in a time of exile, you know, where our churches are emptying out. And um, many people would say that the, the reason that we're in this time of exile is because of, you know, of moral bankruptcy, okay, which there's good arguments for that. And um, others would say it's because of, of this particular party uh, that is the dominant, you know, like political elite of the, of the progressive side, you know, the Democrats, whatever. And there's some truth in that. Um, but then the solution that is offered, at least by the Christian right and by Christian nationalists, is, um, is, to, is to use violence and to use um, the law and, um, and power politics and to purge, um, you know, to purge the, the evil from the land, so to speak, you know, but very selective definitions of what evil is and, and, um, and to really be um, completely um, blind to the injustices that are at the heart of, of this nation and, um, or whatever the, the party or the nation that, you know, that is being promoted, you know, were our, so the powers um, are described as turning against the people of God, exposing them, slamming them for their morality, for their immorality, for being partisan, for being nonpartisan, for not saluting the flag, for being against their policies. Okay. And that's coming, I believe. I believe that this is prophetic um, material here that is accurate and relevant for today. Um, Ezekiel 16, 44, behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, like mother, like daughter, you are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and children. You were also the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. So just remembering that we do not have a noble, uh, you know, origin. None of us have noble origins. All of us are coming from brokenness. All of our forefathers and foremothers um, are marked by, you know, by generational sin and by brokenness. And to be a people that are confessing, uh, humbly confessing our own um, sins of our, of our ethnicity, of our nation, of our people group, of our, of our own family, our clan, our, our, ourselves, you know, and being people that are in, in active repentance and in active um, receiving of our forgiveness. That is, that is a critical posture. So um, Israel, though, would judge other nations as worse, other peoples, other churches, denominations, whatever the equivalent would be. Um, now your older sister, verse 46, is Samaria, who lives north of you, 
with her daughters and your younger sister who lives south of you, Sodom, with her daughters. So it's kind of like saying, look, you guys, um, Al-Qaeda is your, you, you know, your older sister and, um, you know, um, Al you know, Al-Shabaab is your, is your younger, is your older sister, whatever. I mean, like, what would be the equivalence of groups um, of people, you know, um, Hamas is your younger sister and, you know, Israel um, or Russia is your older sister. You know, I mean, everywhere we, we need to think about the equivalence of who we would demonize and who we would not see as our brother or sister, but it's just evil incarnate. Um, you know, um, the Democratic Party are your older sister or the Republican Party are your young, older, younger sister. And, um, but then it says, yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, you know, the worst perpetrator pe people group or, you know, ethnic, racial, ethnic group that you can demonize or ideological group. Um, you've not only uh, done according to their abominations, but as if they were too little, you acted more corruptly in all of your conduct than they. This is a critique of directed at God's people. Okay. Can we hear it um, for ourselves? As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Can we confess the sins of our own um, church? And um, not just them, say in my case, those who I might overly criticize the Christian right, um, but every, you know, my own, my own self and my, my clan, my group, can we come um, and act in accordance with Jesus' teaching to cast out the log from our own eyes so that we can see clearly to take out the speck in our sister's or brother's eye? Um, here's a, a, a clear word about what the sin of Sodom was um, in verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. Wow, do I ever see that today? And do I even experience that in my own life? Um, I can see that I'm prone to this. Um, it's all around me in my nation. It's all around um, me when I travel around the world. It's in Western Europe. It's in, it's in North America. It's, it's in the global South. Uh, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Okay, is, is, does this describe our situation? Thus they were haughty and they committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Okay, being removed isn't such a bad thing. Falling is, the, is necessary in order for us to be raised up. In order to be lifted up, you have to fall. Um, so let's accel accelerate that, that place where we, where we hit the dust and we, and we face the sin of our, of, our, of our own selves and of our nation, of our party, whatever it might be. Furthermore, Samaria, okay, who are they? Iran, Iran, Iran Iranian, or Islamic extremists, did not commit half of your sins, for you have multiplied your abominations more than they. Thus you have made your sister, uh, Russia, um, or whoever, appear more righteous by all your abominations which you have committed. Also bear your disgrace in that you have made judgment favorable for your sisters, you know, China, North Korea, because of your sin in which you acted more abominably than they. They are more in the right than you. Yes, be also ashamed and bear your disgrace in that you made your sisters appear righteous. Nevertheless, I will restore their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters, the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, and along with them your own captivity, in order that you may bear your humiliation and feel ashamed for all that you have done when you became a consolation to them. 
So in other words, we're going to suffer the consequences of idolatry. And that's okay. You know, uh, Ezekiel is the prophet who is there among the exiles. And we need to find uh, what it means to be in a place uh, where we develop a prophetic posture um, in a, a situation where the church is lo has losing has lost its credibility. So many scandals of leadership, so many sexual scandals, so many financial scandals, so many political scandals. You know, our churches are being emptied out. And uh, if there's going to be a revival, it's got to um, start from really, really coming, uh, biting the dust and being fallen. Um, we can only be resurrected um, from the dead if we've died. Verse 55, your sister Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to their former state and you with your daughters will also return to your former state. There's going to be restoration. As the name of your sister Sodom was not heard from your lips in your, in your day of pride before your wickedness was uncovered, so now you have become the reproach of the daughters of Eden and all who are around her of the daughters of the Philistines, those surrounding you who despise you. Now think about this. This is a Jewish uh, priestly character, you know, uh, Ezekiel, who is bringing um, a full ex prophetic exposure of the Jewish people. I mean, this is the um, this is material that could be used um, to feed anti-Semitism, couldn't it? And what we're seeing though is that this is um, here we're modeling uh, walking in the light. Uh, of, of of a whole people group, you know, of the chosen people. Can we walk in the light uh, as a as a people group where we can confess the sins of our of ourselves as well as those that we're most annoyed by, you know, who are part of the body of Christ? You have borne the penalty of your lewdness and abominations, the Lord declares. For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Okay. Um, so that's how this text ends. Um, you know, God um, is really, this is a hard-hitting text, and Ezekiel has the guts to, to speak it, and however imperfectly, and he's not the end of the story. Um, you know, we see in um, the New Testament how when Jesus approaches Jerusalem, you know, he saw the city and he wept over it, didn't he, in Luke 19.41. And, um, and he said, if you had known in that day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And I think here he's describing, you know, what happened when the Romans destroyed, um, Israel destroyed Jerusalem in, in 70 AD. Okay. But is this prophetic for Another, uh, another war, you know, that will lead to the destruction, um, you know, of, of, of Israel as well, um, where um, there's an opportunity for there to be, a, a, you know, God's intervention in some way. Um, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So see, Jesus himself... Um, is so much not a Zionist in the sense of uh, being about uh, homeland security and defense, um, even of the most, uh, the, the holiest of sites, Jerusalem, right? Um, and he comes into the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling 
And think about the temple as being uh, a metaphor for the for each of us. So will we let Jesus come into our temples and drive out uh, the powers and principalities, saying to them, it is written, in my house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. I think in many ways we've made our bodies a robber's den. Um, you know, we... You know, we allow ourselves to be defiled by our, you know, by our, our partisan allegiances, by our materialism, by so many things that we, um, that we contemplate, you know, by pornography, by, you know, by just overt materialism and, and racial ethnic pride, so many things. Um, I want to read a section from um, Daniel Bourget to close. Um, we see that um, Jesus is, um, he, he passes cl uh, close by Jerusalem a long time after the city's day of birth, long after her espousals to the Lord, and a long time indeed after all the abominations described in the book of Ezekiel. He goes past, he draws near. Luke tells us, and he saw the city. How did he react when he saw the city? He wept, Luke says. This is so unexpected how much discreet suffering there is in the simplicity of, of this word, Jesus wept over her. Why did he weep over Jerusalem when he had never wept over other towns, when all were, no doubt, equally blameworthy? He wept because there was a unique bond between him and the city, a bond which is that of the profound love that God has for her, a bond forged in the tenderness of God for the city. God's tenderness for Jerusalem is alive in Jesus, and this tenderness is wounded which is why he weeps. God's pain is his pain. God's tenderness is his tenderness. Jesus reveals this to us. Jesus who incarnates the divine tenderness, not through a speech, but by tears alone. See, this is beautiful because uh, we have to be careful that we don't fall into an Old Testament prophetic mindset where we're just harsh, which Ezekiel can be, um, without letting Jesus be the prophet par excellence who shows us the demeanor the humble demeanor that doesn't exclude courageous exposés, but that is marked by, you know, by this tenderness. Would not these tears of Jesus be the very tears of God? The tears of Jesus are heavy with the pain felt by God through the centuries, elusively evoked in the oracle of Ezekiel. It is the pain of knowing that what Jerusalem received from her parents, she has inflicted in turn on her children. Her parents wanted her death, and now she hands over her children to death, offering them in sacrifice to her lovers. She gives her children as victims to the abominations of which she was a victim. This is a terrible human reality which caused God to say, As was the mother, so is the daughter. You are the daughter of your mother. But God does not just stand idly by before this fact to the terrible human reality. He opposes the extraordinary reality that issues from within. His compassionate tenderness has not disappeared, but is transformed into an extraordinary, merciful tenderness, which will be in the, the final word of God in this oracle. I will pardon everything that you've done. Verse 63. I believe that God in the end, through the course of the centuries and in the many facets of his tenderness, has not ceased to say the same. What I said to you when you were innocent in your blood, live. I say to you now, when you, you have blood on your hands, live. He says this to her in the tears of Jesus. I say to you today, when my blood is about to flow for you, live. How unfathomable are the depths of faithfulness in this tenderness, which is nonetheless pain, pained. Reader friend, 
amongst all the wounded beings to be found on the earth, there also we find Christ quietly present at their side. We mustn't ever forget this. The gospel invites us to always remember that we must go and speak to all the wounded souls to strengthen or bring comfort to them. This episode in the life of Jesus causes us to discover something more as we realize that on this occasion he doesn't instruct a disciple, an intermediary, a prophet, any third person to go and tell Jerusalem of his pain. He addresses himself directly to her, saying, If only you had known in this day that you had been visited. For the first time, Jerusalem hears the pain of God, not from a messenger, but directly from him, the one she hurts, but who loves her. So, um, so, so incredible. Um, I want to read now just the final part. This is called the paradox of tenderness. All the foregoing is so that we may really be aware that the tenderness of God can be wounded, that it is vulnerable, exposed, handed over to men. The tenderness of God is exposed deliberately in all of its weakness. Here we are again deep in the paradox of the divine tenderness. We see the great power, indeed the almighty power of a tenderness able to resuscitate the dead. We see this same tenderness appearing in its extreme fragility, its extreme vulnerability, able to be deeply wounded by the infidelity of human love. I don't believe we have the right to mishandle this paradox by amputating one of its elements. It is true that the tenderness of God is almighty, but it is also truly all weak. To deny either of these realities is to misrepresent the tenderness of God. So, in other words, like, it is about prophetic exposure and naming the evils and showing that um, righteousness, um, there is a standard of righteousness. And, you know, we saw that, that the sin of Sodom was disregarding the poor and being haughty, right? So there is that... Um, warning about the consequences. And so there's the um, tenderness of God is almighty, but it is also truly all weak, right? God um, allows God's self in Jesus to be crucified. And, um, you know, um, sorry, I'm going to keep keep quoting here, Daniel Bourget, to deny either of these realities, God's almightiness or God's all weakness, is to misrepresent the tenderness of God. We should hold on to both because the truth of God's tenderness includes and exceeds both in a mystery to be contemplated rather than explained. Wow, in a mystery to be contemplated rather than explained. Such is the tenderness of the Father revealed by the Son and given by the Holy Spirit for us to contemplate in silence in the infinite and wonderful depth of its mystery. Uh, Jesus wept. I would like to close this chapter with a patristic text that is very sober, strong, and poignant. It comes from a church father, who meditated these tears of Jesus with constant reference to Ezekiel 16, above all verses 9 to 13. It evokes the incomprehensible human folly of the wounds we inflict on divine tenderness. It is a text from a Syrian father of the 4th century, Ephraim of Nisibis. I leave it with you without any commentary, needing none. I hope it feeds you in the quietness of meditation. The daughter of Zion sees the sun and she hardens her heart. The Father of mercy pours out his blessing upon her, and she will heap hatred on the only Son. The Father had washed her of the blood that covered her, and she will soil the Son with spittle. He had clothed her with precious fabric and embroidered cloth, and she will dress the Son with a cloak of derision. He placed a crown upon her head, and she will tress him with a crown of thorns. 
He had fed her with fine flour and honey, and she will give him gall. He had given her the best of wine, and she will hand him a vinegar-soaked sponge. He brought her into his cities, and she will drag him out of town. He shod her in fine leather sandals, and she will make him march barefoot to Golgotha. He had adorned her with a linen belt, and she will pierce his side with a spear. Then Jesus looked at the city, and his tears began to flow.